G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Hey, over the past year, the COVID lockdowns have threatened more than just our comfort, our health, our work and our economy. They've also affected the growth of our local churches. Many churches pivoted to providing live stream church and so many back worshipping together now continue to live stream. And while many churches are open again, there are restrictions that have hindered especially larger churches and mega churches. Now, if you are the leader of a small group in your local church, you'll be especially interested in the coming conversation with the executive pastor of one of the fastest growing churches in the United States right now. It's a church that transitioned from a mega church model to a multiplication model. Now we're asking the question today, what's it going to take to reach communities and nations and what does it mean to be part of a disciple-making movement? Our special guest through this next hour is in the ministry business of multiplying effectiveness as a Christian believer. Tyler Dipri is executive pastor at Experience Life Church in Lubbock in Texas in the United States. He's a speaker, performance coach, trainer through the John Maxwell team. Tyler Dipri, a special welcome along to 2020. Hey, thanks so much, Neil. I really appreciate you having us on. Hey, Tyler, just before we get into the essence of our conversation today around disciple making, you're in Texas in the U.S. Uh, There's been some challenging times for the U.S. uh, with a very, very significant year last year, all sorts of volatility, uh, changing presidents, all sorts of things like that. And of course, COVID having a a major impact on uh, areas and the sorts of statistics we see in Australia uh, look pretty scary. Uh, Just a general impression about how things are going in your neck of the woods. Yeah, I mean, things uh, have been really calm and easy over here. You know, nothing big going on, you know, obviously just kidding on that. There's just been uh, lots of different things happening uh, here in the U.S. and also globally because we live in a a global world. So I would assume that uh, similar things that are happening here and we're being impacted with here in Lubbock are very similar things that your listeners are being impacted by uh, in Australia. You know, you're having uh, issues with being able to even meet people and, uh, you know, get together with whether that's other church members or even reaching out to the community. So there's challenges there. There's challenges uh, in in trying to understand something, you know, with COVID that many people don't. And then now just challenges in, in vaccine and stuff. So, yeah, just lots of challenges. And one of the great, I think, gifts that God gave us is uh, we started a transition a few years ago that uh, really made it where our church didn't have to break stride whenever COVID 
uh, came with all these shutdowns, and that's been a huge blessing for us. Now, you're a part of a church which has been considered a mega church, uh, thousands and thousands of members. And as you say, this is important. You didn't have to break stride because of COVID. Church just Mm -hmm. kept on keeping on, kept on growing, kept on expanding because you've got a different model that you work with. But before we get on to that model, let's talk about Mm -hmm. the idea of a disciple-making movement because we're going to begin to unpack uh, some of the things that have made your church able to withstand whatever was going to be thrown up against it. But uh, this idea of a disciple-making movement, how do you describe that? Yeah, so a disciple-making movement is a... Uh, it's where you see multiple churches planted in multiple streams down to the fourth generation. So sometimes people have a, a hard, uh, it's hard to understand what that means. Think of it like uh, grandparents. So you not only just plant a church, but then that church plants a church and that church plants a church and that church plants a church. So it's kind of like you have a great grandparent then the next generation are the great grandparent or the grandparents. Then you have the parents, and then you have the kids. That would be the fourth generation. And so, when you have that happening in a, sh- a short amount of time, you know, five to ten years, uh, down to the fourth generation and multiple streams, that's what we call a movement. Uh, we often think it's hard work and very expensive to plant a church, uh, but I think you're even challenging the idea that, uh, you know, you can plant a church or you can plant a small group. Uh, give us an idea here of getting over that sort of mindset of being expansive and planting churches that somehow or other that's hard and it takes an awful lot of bureaucracy to get in the way to, to make things happen and it's expensive. Give us an idea about what it is uh, that you've found is so, so powerful. Yeah, well, what we know is planning churches is expensive and it is hard work. Um, and so one of the things that we did with our old model, uh, with the mega church model, is we found that it was actually more cost effective and easier on everyone instead of planning a whole new church to instead plant campuses. But even in that model, it is super expensive. So one of the things that we found, and this is in our book uh, from Megachurch to Multiplication, um, is that we were doing pretty well even financially. Uh, the cost per baptism, and I don't know exactly what it is in Australia, but the cost per baptism, so how, how much money comes in to how many baptisms happen, in the U.S. it's $1.5 million per baptism. That's right, $1.5 million per baptism. Wow. That's really expensive. Um, and so our numbers were, were better than that. We, we had five, it cost us $5,000 to baptize one person. And so we were feeling really great about ourselves. Like when we found that out, we're like, oh, that's awesome. That's great. Um, and that's awesome if you don't want to reach everyone in your area. But if you start having a heart for we have a million people in about – it's about a hundred square mile uh, geographical area for us, and so we we sought to not just reach some or as many as we could, but all people in our area. And we just did some quick math, and we realized that doing the traditional even campus planting or church planting was that's not going to be an option because that we would need five billion dollars, 
And uh, <laughs> I'm not that great of a fundraiser, um, and I didn't see that money coming in. So to us, we just had to find a different way. And so we started looking in other parts of the world, and we found that there's a model that other people are using where their cost per baptism is around three cents. <laughs> and that's crazy to us. To me, that's a sustainable model. You know, even if you're just, I know I'm just talking financials right now, but if you only just talk like sustainability and the ability to do it, to me, that pushed us to at least consider it because the other option wasn't really an option. Let me just say, I have no idea what Australian figures might be when it comes to cost per baptism. And I do want to invite listeners, uh, if you're across some economics and the Christian Church in Australia, feel free to be part of our conversation today, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. But it is staggering when you think that the cost per baptism in a typical, uh, in the United States, one and a half million dollars. Well, I mean, there's got to be more economical ways to do that. The fact that you've got it down to $5,000 to baptize one person, that's amazing. But if you could move to the three cent model, uh, I think everybody's ears are going to be pricked up about that because a three cent model is going to be a very, very powerful one. But this started for you, Tyler, and uh, the leadership in your church with a prayer, an original prayer that was for 10,000 people to commit their lives to Jesus in 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. That sort of prayer, I mean, that's this is an economics issue as well, isn't it? How do you actually then visualize uh, and envision uh, how you think you might go and then uh, working out a strategy to get there. Take us back to, uh, you know, this idea of having a a prayer uh, goal and then setting a strategy. Yeah, so one of the things that I will say that has helped us is from the very beginning, our church was founded on prayer. And so from the very beginning, when our our founding pastor, his name's Chris Galanos, uh, the very first meeting in his living room, uh, they were praying. And they started just praying and asking what God might want to do. And he brought to the, their hearts this vision of 10,000 people committing their life to Christ in 10 years. And to understand like the scale of that, you have to remember this is eight people in a living room with no money, no building, nothing. They don't have anything. And so that prayer was absurd. It was just crazy. Um, and we just held that as a prayer goal, saying... This is not going to be, if this happens, it's not going to be because we're so amazing or uh, we're great speakers or or whatever. It's going to be because God did it. It's going to be God that gets the glory because we're not going to be able to do it. Well, I mean, kind of fast forwarding through that is uh, God just did something really amazing uh, at Experience Life and something that just is really supernatural. And like you mentioned, we were mentioned in... uh, you know, as one of the fastest 100 growing churches uh, in America a few times. And it just, it was kind of a roller coaster ride. And we didn't hit 10,000 in 10 years, we hit it in eight. Uh, and so what happened at eight years when you had, you hit this prayer goal that seemed impossible, um, it kind of gives you permission to start asking God, okay, did we dream too small? Um, God, what are you wanting us to do? And that kind of set the precedent for where we're going and and what's happening now. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. 
1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. You might have a thought or two around what's happening with the Australian church and uh, some ideas that we're talking about today. Tyler Dipri is executive pastor at the Experience Life Church in Lubbock in Texas in the United States. Uh, you can also respond to that Facebook question asking, do you think Australian Christians are willing to change to the type of discipleship Jesus expected of his followers? You can find that at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Tyler, let me ask you, given that we're experiencing globally the idea of economic recession that, that accompanies COVID, uh, there's something that you've been talking about of recent times, the idea of an evangelical recession. Uh, what gives you the idea that uh, that an evangelical recession is happening in your neck of the woods in the U.S. and perhaps happening in nations like Australia? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, um, but I would probably point to, I think there's a, people that are a lot smarter than me that are pointing to that. A guy named John S. Dickerson, who uh, was a former CM, CNN columnist and wrote with for the New York Times and Washington Post, uh, so was a reporter. And he's really a guy that uh, he wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Recession, uh, where we really got our a lot of these ideas behind it. But if you want to boil it down, and, and I have pastor friends all over the U.S., and I don't think that any of them would argue this. And first would be that Christians and the amount of Christians specifically here in the U.S., it's actually a smaller number than you think. Uh, a lot of times they'll talk about, especially when you talk about voting blocks, they'll talk about evangelicals and how they're just such a force. Well, when political uh, pundits are talking about that. They're not necessarily talking about uh, committed Christians. They're talking about a voting block, right? And so it's actually smaller. The amount of people that are going to church on a regular basis, it's way smaller than we imagine. It's, uh, I, I would say we estimate it's around eight to 10% of the population in the U.S. Uh, and sometimes that gets as high as saying it's going to be 35 uh, so it's way smaller than we we say it is. That's the first thing. The second thing, and the reason I would point to there is a recession coming, is every church right now, and this was true pre-COVID and is especially true now post-COVID, or not even post, in the middle of COVID, is you're seeing a reduction in giving that is not just oh, well, they'll come back later and they'll give as they get older. We are seeing a huge reduction in giving, and most of the giving is done by people that are over 50. That's a problem for the future of the church, and I don't know that you're going to see that go back to anything that resembles what it used to be. So there's a huge reduction, overall reduction in giving. And then the third thing is you're seeing people leaving the church. What that means is you're having your the kids that come into your church and come to your youth group or grow up in your church and your kids program, when they're getting 18, 19, 20, 30 years old, they're leaving the church and they're not coming back. Used to, you might see kids go off and leave and then come back later in life, but we're not seeing any indication that that is happening right now. And then the last thing is we're not reaching enough new people to make up for this loss. So ultimately, we're not even keeping up with population growth. And that is why I would say there is a recession happening. 
And that would be another good reason to change the model of how you do church because this idea of, uh, you know, costing one and a half million dollars per baptism and if you could reduce that down to three cents per baptism, uh, you'd be on a trajectory of growth and that would be magnificent. It's interesting, isn't it, here that somehow or other the church is so big and so institutional in so many respects that it's difficult to turn things around. Uh, When it comes to changing direction, you have to be pretty courageous, don't you, at the the leadership level in church uh, to change some direction in the way you do things, get a new strategy that actually reduces the cost per uh, baptism. Uh, What are your thoughts here about how you change direction? If you're thinking, you're listening to this conversation today saying, well, I'm uh, I'm perhaps one of the decision makers in my local church, Um, you know, how would I go about uh, approaching the idea of changing direction? So first of all, I would say the only reason you would make a change is if you see there's a problem. That for me is why you have to understand, you know, what we're talking about with the great evangelical recession, that if we do nothing, it is going to be a problem long term. So staying status quo is actually not a very good proposition if you understand the problem. So the first thing I would say is I would just really evaluate how your church is doing. Are you doing well in fulfilling the Great Commission? And and, and that becomes a little uncomfortable sometimes. And then the second thing I would say is you need to pray about what God might have for you because one of the things that we want to be very clear on I want to be very clear on is I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do this. I think there is things that God calls each church to be and to do that are unique to that church. We're not all, you know, using the whole idea of the church as a body of Christ is we're not all going to be feet and we're not all going to be hands. Um, But God gets to decide what your church is and what it should be doing. We shouldn't be the ones deciding that. So I would just say from a fellow pastor to other pastors, you have to ask God what he wants. All right, so it starts actually with prayer for the leaders of your church to identify if there is a problem and then to wait for a divinely inspired strategy to move forward. And it may not even be the sort of model that we're talking about with you today, but we're talking with you because your model is an inspiring model to move from a mega church model to a multiplication model, the idea that more campuses and then more small groups can make all the difference in turning around the growth of the local church. This idea of a multiplication process, I wonder, uh, share us a little bit of insight here, Tyler, on what it means to multiply. Because uh, when we talked about uh, churches that start campuses and campuses that have small groups that start small groups, give us some insight here into how that multiplication process really starts to uh, gain momentum once, uh, once it gets established. Well, most church growth is actually addition. What you do is you you start a gathering or you do something like that along those lines, start a small group, and then you add ones and twos, adding to the whole, and hopefully you're adding more people than you're losing. But that's simply addition. That's not what I'm talking about. Even with campuses, you know, whenever you're talking about a megachurch, most campuses are addition. They're not multiplication uh, simply because they don't happen quick enough. Multiplication instead invites everybody in your church, everybody in your group 
to be a disciple maker, and to be a church planter. Therefore, your numbers, the amount of people being church planters is exponential and you begin to multiply. So it's not just adding one great disciple maker. We all know those people that are super charismatic. They can fill up a room. They're great uh, preachers, speakers, and they can add people to the kingdom. And that's awesome. That is not, that's not any problem, but it's simple addition. What if everyone in your church was equipped and sent out to go plant churches and make disciples. Now, it would have to be a simple process. It would have to be something that they were trained in, but that is where multiplication happens when it's not just a few key leaders, but it's everyone inside the church going and planting churches. That's what multiplication looks like. And all of a sudden, we move to uh, what I know you love to talk about, Tyler, and that is leaders, uh, because sometimes we think of the leaders in our church as those who are at the top of the pyramid in so, so, so in that way of talking about it. But leaders happening at all different levels of the local church, and with the multiplication model, you actually create opportunities for the rising up of a whole lot more leaders. Give us your insight here into what happens to people who are ordinarily just pew-warming Christians when you've got a discipleship mentality the way you're talking about, what it does to people and their aspiration to move into a realm of servanthood and leadership in their church. Yeah, the only way what I'm talking about works, the only way that it becomes a movement is if you have normal, everyday people making disciples and planting churches. This doesn't work if it's just pastors. And so one of the things that's been exciting to see, even in our own area, is seeing people that are CPAs, seeing people that are teachers, seeing people that are construction workers and media members, and saying, hey, I have been a committed Christian for years and years, but I have never tried to go and make disciples. And now they are being empowered to go and do that. And they're spending time with people that don't follow Jesus yet. They're spending time and energy trying to make disciples. That's where this thing works. It only works that way. And that's what we're seeing in other parts of the world where you're seeing people that are taxi drivers, but they would identify as a church planter. Now, the the thing is, you... um, A church planning movement, I love this statement, it's a church planning movement is really a leadership movement. That you're going to have to develop leaders at all levels of your organization, of your movement, or it doesn't work. It's not just a singular leader, and this is what makes it sustainable. Because it's not just one person or one stream, it allows for this to be sustainable and healthy long term because it's multiple leaders doing it. And Tyler, just quickly, some embrace this, uh, open arms, loving the idea because there's a certain different style of kingdom mindset there. Others are quite reactionary to this idea. Uh, What are your thoughts for, for people who find it difficult to adjust to a new model? Yeah, I think it's difficult to adjust to anything that's new, and I understand that, and I sympathize with that. 
what I would say is I don't think it's actually new. I think if you would read what we're doing is the book of Acts. In fact, when people ask me, what are you doing now? I tell them, I ask them, would you go read Acts? Because <clears throat> what Paul did is exactly what we're doing. We're empowering people and letting the gospel spread virally through people's natural networks. I don't think it's actually something all that new. It is something that the, we have precedent biblically for. Uh, and so that would just be my answer. Now, of course, I don't feel like it has to be everybody's thing. That's okay. You don't have to do it the way that God has called us to do it. There can be other ways that we can move forward the kingdom of God and partner together. I don't think uh, we have to be adversaries in what we're doing. I think we can partner alongside each other. Tyler, as we get into this part of our conversation, uh, let's just talk a little bit and uh, give us some inspiration here about how, if you change to a multiplication model, things begin to expand. Uh, take us a little bit on the journey from uh, from perhaps uh, the decision to do a different sort of a model to how things have grown and snowballed since then. Sure, yeah. One of the things that's been really exciting with COVID is most churches, like you mentioned, have had to either shut down or go to live streaming. We haven't had any of those issues because all of our churches now meet in small gatherings. You could call them uh, house churches. We call them DMM churches. So it's small groups of anywhere from eight to 50 people um, that meet all throughout different cities. And they are reading together. They are reading scripture. They're doing uh they're praying together. They're seeking people out that don't know Jesus and trying to start relationships with them so that they might know. Um, and so one of the things that we were able to do is we didn't really have to change anything. Nothing was pushed on pause. We, uh, For a few uh, months, we had to go to Zoom, so we weren't able to meet face-to-face. -face, but because our churches were small enough, we could do a Zoom meeting and we could get together. And so one of the things we've seen over the past I think it's uh, two and a half years is we have just trained tons of leaders. We've trained over 1,600 people. It's close to 1,700 leaders around the world in disciple-making movement principles. Uh, we've seen 352 groups start, and that's among people that aren't followers of Jesus. So these aren't, we don't count a group unless it's all people that aren't followers of Jesus. So 352 uh, groups started. We've seen 78 churches started. That's all around the U.S. Uh, in 12 different states. And then now, because we've trained so many leaders, we're starting to see it in other countries, uh, in the UK, and and uh, we're seeing some in other parts of the world uh, as well. So it's been really exciting, and because of that, the reason that it's been able to happen is because they're simple. The hard thing, especially that COVID has shown us, is that big gatherings are complicated, and it's complicated. How do you keep people safe? How do you keep people uh, away from each other whenever there's thousands of people coming into a building? Well, those issues are much, much smaller when you're talking 10 or 50 or 15. It is a lot more manageable to do, and it is a lot easier for those 12 to go out and to meet new people. Instead of inviting people to a big building where they all have to come, we actually go to where people are. So you've got this expansion from where you are in West Texas and uh, mm -hmm. then expanding into 12 states 
across the That's US right. and then uh, over the borders, uh, over the seas, into five countries around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the training of leaders. Now, let me ask you, I'll put you on the spot here, because sometimes we think about uh, what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Uh, 1,600 leaders trained in disciple-making. Now, is mm-hmm. the best way to train disciples actually to train Christians to be a form of leader? Uh, is that really what discipleship should be, could be about? I would suggest that being a disciple is being a leader. I think if you would go to the Great Commission, go therefore go and make disciples of all nations, the only way that you can make disciples is if you're leading someone. So I think there's a, a false dichotomy that there's only a, a chosen few that God somehow blessed with this uh, ability to lead people. I think we've be, gotten confused. Leading people is simply influence. If you are a parent, you lead people. If you are a boss uh, in any way, if you uh, you are leading people, if you are at a stoplight when the light goes from red to green, you're leading people because they're influenced by you. And so I think this idea of leadership, we just need to understand what we're talking about. It's influence. And so I do think the best way to have a movement is that you train Christians and empower Christians and say, hey, look, this is what Jesus told us to do is to go and make disciples. And I would say that is leading people. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Anne. Hello, Anne. Welcome along. Yes, I've been waiting and waiting. Um, my uh, question was, why does he have to pay so much for baptism? When we <laughs> baptise our people, we just go down to the waterfront and baptise them there. So I couldn't understand when he said that he has to pay so much for people to be baptised. Uh, well, that's, a, that's an interesting way that you've interpreted that. Uh, let's get a, a thought or insight here. Uh, Tyler, when we talk about the cost of baptising someone, we're talking about the overall cost of what it takes to run church and, and how you might actually ascribe what it's costing per new baptism, per new member. Uh, give us a, a little insight here for Anne. Right. So whenever we were figuring this, and this is all the money that are given to churches and Christian organizations in the U.S. So we take all of that money, okay, that is supposed to be leading, you know, if they're Christian organizations and ministries, one of the things that Jesus told us to do is that we should be making disciples. And that's one of the main measurements that I know of, of a successful church that is being a good steward. So what we did is we took all that money that is coming into churches and mission organizations in the U.S., and we divided that by the number of baptisms that we have in a given year. That's where we got that $1.5 million. Okay, this is an interesting one, and let's just pause for a moment uh, for Anne here, because I know this is a a question that people might ask, and uh, I think, is there a simple way you can actually do some mathematics on your own local church? Supposing you're a part of a local church, and the giving at your local church might be $100,000 over a year. And if you were then dividing into that $100,000, supposing you had five converts and they were being baptized in your local church in the year, divide that 100000 by five and that would be $20,000 per 
convert or per baptism is that a that's probably just the simple maths here but uh, you're right. talking about a you know a national scale and that you can really bring that down to your local church can't you apply the economics there and you can discover how much it's costing uh, to run your local church if you've got a focus on reaching out and uh, winning converts baptizing people and making disciples and the the cost would be quite uh, substantial right and thank you so much for your call. Appreciate you calling in and uh, and uh, just uh, getting that clarification here because I think uh, others would have been a little bit uh, confused by some of that as well. Uh, let's move on here to this idea of being a disciple because this includes every one of us, Tyler. Uh, a disciple who is an obedient follower of Jesus. Now, I, this is an interesting word that I picked up in in the, just before we were getting getting together our thoughts for today's conversation. I think there's a lot of Christians who have a bit of a, a concern about this word of obedience, and it is a challenging one every time you might hear this in church life. What are your thoughts for, thoughts for uh, the idea of an obedient Jesus follower as part of, you know, you've got to change your thoughts and your attitudes to be a part of a movement you're talking about. How important is obedience here? Yeah, I think obedience is important to Jesus, and it's one of the things that he talks about over and over again. I, I go, one of my favorite parts on obedience, uh, you can go to, if you love love me, obey my commands, you know, Jesus said that, or you can go to, one of my favorites is Matthew 7, talking about the wise man builds his house on the rock, uh, and the foolish man builds his house on sand. And we like to always think that that's just about being wise and foolish and like being smart, but really what Jesus says is everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is a foolish man. What he's talking about is if you're not putting into practice my words in the Sermon on the Mount, you're a fool. And again, I would say, don't be mad at me, be mad at Jesus for that, because I wish it wasn't there either. Because uh, I often act like a fool, not like a wise man. And so one of the things that we have that is just unique to a disciple-making movement, what we call DMM, is obedience-based discipleship, where we don't move on until we have obeyed. Because here in the West, at least in, in America, and uh, I know Australia has similar culture, but one of the things that we have found is that we don't have a theology of obedience. We have a, uh, we want to move on once we understood something. So what we do is we think that we have like a basically a discipleship model that's based on knowledge. And the best way that I can explain this is when you learn something, how many of you read a book or hear a sermon and then you move on from it? And I know this is me, right? That I often I hear things and then I move on because I understood it. It's not that I wait until I'm actually doing it until I move on. It's as long as I understand, I move on. And so what we're saying is we probably shouldn't move on until we're actually obeying what Jesus asks us to do. It'd be similar to like if you went into a church and you heard a sermon get preached one week and the pastor came back the next week and asked everybody, all right, uh, who all did what I asked you to do last week and had everybody raise their hands? Um, I know I've never heard, had that, but that's, a, that's because it's a knowledge-based discipleship. An obedience-based discipleship would have that same scenario play out, and it would make sense that, hey, we're not ready to move on until we've obeyed. It's similar to, to a child. You know, my four-year-old little girl, 
She uh, she may understand in theory that she needs to pick up her toys, but until she d- actually does it, we can't move on because she hasn't obeyed. Tyler, I'm asking listeners to respond today to our Facebook question, our 2020 question on Facebook, that asks, do you think Australian Christians are willing to change to the type of discipleship Jesus expected of his followers? And all of a sudden, that word obedience uh, helps that question make a whole lot more sense. Uh, one response we received from an Anne on Facebook says, uh, she says, not unless we have a heart transplant to love as Jesus does. We are comfortable to go and be fed each week, but to help and to love the unlovable without a gender or expectation for them to become a believer? Question mark. Uh, so, no, I don't believe we are there yet. There's a, there's a listener who's saying, uh, in their uh, experience, Aussies are not at a point where our obedience to this idea of discipleship is actually uh, at that point. And others might have a different view of that. So at 1-800-316-316, if you'd like to join in our conversation, uh, let's take another question uh, from a listener. Welcome along. Hi. Hello. Uh, can you hear me? That listener who is uh, is waiting, I don't have a name for you. What uh, are you? Can you hear me? All right, they're uh, not responding there. Uh, so obedience, an important part of what it is to be disciple. Let me ask you here, Tyler, because uh, this can short circuit uh, the way we think about uh, how we serve in our local church if we recognize that we're actually serving Jesus' mission, not necessarily only the mission of the pastor and the leaders of your local church, but you're hopeful that your pastor and leaders in your local church are serving Jesus' mission. If everyone's on the same page, we're all heading in the same direction. It's quite easy to be obedient, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. We have to develop God's heart. And I think whenever you read Scripture, you go to Revelation 7, 9 through 12, or you go to 2 Peter 3, 9, you start to understand God's heart is not just for his people currently. It's for the whole world to know Jesus. I mean, Revelation 7 is such a beautiful picture of all nations, tribes, people uh, bowing before Jesus, uh, bowing before the throne and worshiping God, that's that's what God is wanting. And so the thing is, we have to decide, do we want to be a part? Because God is asking us to, of bringing his kingdom to earth. And that's, I mean, that's in the Lord's prayer. Uh, bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And we get to be a part of that. And so one of the things that I think just as pastors is sometimes we can get so caught up in our building our own kingdoms And we don't mean to, but that's where our flesh gets in the way. But the great thing about partnering with God is it's not our responsibility, it's His when we go and partner with His kingdom. And so I think ultimately it's about developing God's heart, not only for the people all around you, um, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your family that are far from God, but also the people around the world. There are people, millions of people around the world that have never even heard the name of Jesus. That is, should just be just absolutely burning in our souls. That's right. Uh, it ought to be burning in our souls. And uh, I imagine that it's our own 
devotional life, our understanding of what it is to be in the kingdom. As you say, uh, just think through some of the issues of what the Lord's Prayer is all about and some of those things can uh, can be uh, a little bit more impacting on us to, uh, to change direction that we have. Uh, so 1-800-316-316, if you'd like to join in our conversation today, you can also respond on our Facebook post today and asking the question, uh, the question today on Facebook, do you think Australian Christians are willing to change to the type of discipleship Jesus expected of his followers? Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Vision Radio. Let's try, uh, Cherie is on the line. Hi, Cherie, welcome. No, we don't have a Cherie. I'm not sure if there's an issue with our phone line, but... Um, uh, we'll uh, keep trying 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Not too long uh, uh, remaining in our time here, Tyler. Let me just bring this down to a practical level because it's all very well to talk about all sorts of uh, things that, uh, you know, biblical issues and obedience to Jesus and those sorts of things. For people who are a part of a local church and in a small group, how would it affect uh, a person who is a member of a small group today uh, to have a mindset on this idea of multiplication uh, so that something effective might happen in their community. The idea that every small group needs a leader and every leader needs an assistant. This gives us an idea of how this all works in practice. Yeah, I think the thing that would change is it would change your vision of what could be. No longer is it just enough to attend. You can get in the game. That's the thing that I've really loved about this model is it encourages everybody to get in the game from the leader to the assistant to the person that just is randomly coming. I mean, you're asking people to get in the game and you're going to help them develop along the way. There are some like simple steps that you can go through and yeah, you're going to need some help to get started. And that's one of the reasons we believe in training so much. And that's one of the things that we do. Uh, we train leaders all the time so that people can be equipped to pass this on. Let's talk briefly about the motivation for people who are a part of small groups. Now, your small groups have been operating well before all of the upheavals of last year. I wonder whether, and given that you know you sort of uh, you know short-circuited the idea of your church, uh, uh, you know, falling behind. In fact, things have continued to grow and and uh, become nicely established. The momentum's been there. The motivation for people, though, when everything happened last year, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you know, the presidential election. There's a new president now, uh, President Joe Biden. Has that been even a motivating factor for people who've been a part of your discipleship program? Uh, pro- uh, the idea that people are actually motivated when things seem to be tougher. What are, what are the thoughts about uh, about how people have been affected by tougher times, Tyler? I just think the the house church model, the DMM model that we're talking about, allows for real conversations to happen. So I just remember whenever the week that the George Floyd incident uh, took place, where he was he was killed by a police officer, um, we absolutely spent the whole time in our church discussing that and what that was going to mean and what feelings we were having. And ultimately, uh, there was anger and there was sadness and there was frustration and there was a lot of different emotions going on. Um, But you're able to be community, you're able to be the church together, 
and then ultimately say, hey, the thing that we need to do here is we need to worry about bringing the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. And so whatever role that looks like, that's what we need to play. And so uh, it looks different for every church because we don't have, it's not just a bunch of uh, clones. Each church is autonomous, uh, but they're a part of a larger network. And so that's been really exciting to see. So when you've got leaders who are prayerfully saying, how do we change direction and uh, turn our church into a, uh, you know, a, uh, a crisis-proof church that's going to continue to grow? And you've got this strategy and uh, something comes out of a prayer movement in the leadership of your local church. I know that when you in your church started to strategize these things, you used effectively something simple like a whiteboard. And you started to say, well, we have a goal and we've got some numbers on that board. How are we actually going to make that happen? How useful is it to get your leaders around a whiteboard and start to strategize about how you move forward? I would just encourage any leader listening to this, whether you're on staff or not, to evaluate how is your church actually doing? Because sometimes we get into this mode of doing things, not because they're super strategic, but doing them just because we've done them for a while. And there may have been a reason in the past that we did it that way, but we no longer understand that or do it, or the times and the realities may have changed. And so I would look at what are your metrics? What are the things that you are measuring? Um, Because even the things that we used to measure are no longer the things that we measure today. They they seem to be different uh, measurements that we are not able to. Our old metrics just weren't able to to use. And so that is one of the things I would highly encourage: getting around a whiteboard, get around a you know, get a flow chart, and evaluate how are you doing at bringing the gospel to your community and beyond because it can't just be your community because Jesus told us to go into the whole world. It has to be your community and beyond. And Tyler, running out of time, just a couple of minutes left in our conversation, uh, there'll be people listening to us going, well, this is a great idea. I'd like to learn a little more. Can Aussie uh, small groups or churches join your movement? Is that the way it works? I mean, you're into five countries uh, beyond the US. Uh, Can Aussies who are listening to our conversation today uh, join into what's happening with the movement? Well, one of the great things is one of the ways that we got connected was actually I did a training for uh, about 100 Australian pastors uh, here pretty recently. And so, yes, absolutely. The the thing that we would encourage you to do is to go to our website, experiencelifenow.com, and sign up for an upcoming training. Um, if you would just let me know uh, in the notes how you heard about it, you could mention this radio call because one of the things we might try to do is connect you with an Australian pastor that we've already trained so that you would be able to uh, interact with them face to face. And so, but yes, absolutely. We would love for you to do that experiencelifenow.com and you can sign up for any of our trainings. They're completely free. We don't charge anything ever. And that is just one of the commitments we've made. Okay, well, it's a disciple-making movement, uh, free to get that detail. Uh, You don't charge people anything ever. Uh, Some people will be inspired by that. Uh, Tyler Dippery is executive pastor at Experience Life Church in Texas in the U.S. He did mention the website. Let me say it. It's experiencelifenow.com. 
experiencelifenow.com. You did mention a book earlier, the book From Mega Church to Multiplication, A Church's Journey Towards Movement, and uh, that's written by the founding senior pastor in your church, uh, Chris mm-hmm. Galanos. And so uh, people can get that online or going to the website at experiencelifenow.com. Uh, great to catch up with you Tyler and thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us uh, with here in Australia and uh, just inspiring to hear what's happening Uh, God's richest blessing on all of your expansion and uh, thanks so much for talking to our listeners today on 2020 hey thanks so much Neil I appreciate it and you'll have a great day thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media to find out more about us go to vision.org.au 